What will you drink if you stop drinking? I should drink water. It's a mixer, Patsy. We have it with whiskey. What do you know it's like? I mean, you've given up drinking before. Worst eight hours of my life. Hello, 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 and welcome to another very special episode of A Very Special Episode, a podcast where I get to curl up on the sofa and watch TV with some of my favourite people. My name is Michael Lee Richardson. I'm a writer based in Glasgow, and I am very excited to talk to my guest this week, who's Chris McCrudden. Um, I will say that it's been a little while, I realise. I actually recorded quite a few episodes back in January and February of this year, but ironically enough, I've been working on a top secret TV project, which has been taking me away from uh, my real favourite pastime, which is talking about TV with people. Because I recorded these back in January, February, I talked to Chris about his new book, or what was that at the time, his new book, Sachet to the Centre of the Earth, which has been out for a couple of months now. Uh, and I would recommend it to anyone who likes uh, particularly the type of comedy that we're going to talk about in this week's episode. So without further ado, I don't know what that word means. Uh, and I never, ever use it apart from on this podcast. Without further ado, here's Chris McCrudden. My very special guest, this week is Chris McCrudden. Chris was born in South Shields and has been at various points in his life a butcher's boy, a burlesque dancer and a hand model for a giant V for Victory sign on Canary Wharf. He now lives in London and, when not writing books, works in PR, so in many ways you could describe his life as a full-time fiction. He is the author of the Battlestar Suburbia series, the third book of which, Sachet to the Centre of the Earth, comes out in February 2022. If you like science fiction, graphs, and gifts from RuPaul's Drag Race, you can follow him on Twitter for all three, sometimes at once, at C. McCrudden. Hello, Chris. Hi there. Hi. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, no, my pleasure to be here. I've gotten into this awful habit, and I've said this before on this podcast, of saying talking to us today as if this isn't just me in my kitchen sitting on my laptop. Conceptually imagining your audience you are envisioning the hordes of people who want to hear us wang on about absolutely fabulous yes that'll be it that'll be it <laughs> the big audience you're, ma- you're manifesting your audience. <laughs> for 2022 <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll take us back to your early days starting us off with uh what sort of things did you like watching when you were younger oh well, well um god what did i like um I was thinking about this the other day and some kind of some of my formative television memories are stuff that would be on the telly on sort of Saturday afternoons. Mm. So kind of stuff like The A-Team and Knight Rider. Oh, wow. Which I loved when I was five. <laughs> um, would I watch them now? Ooh, no, not on your telly. But so I can remember loving them, but I can't really remember any of the content of them whatsoever Mm. but there are other things that didn't necessarily have kind of the same impact on me at the time but have kind of stayed with me sort of much more through life so one of my sort of like biggest formative telly memories was my mam used to video things off top of the pops amazing and then watch them back and i had a couple of memories of my gran being round because she was always round she never took her coat off ever <laughs> well she won't feel the benefit <laughs> you know i'm not stopping down I'm, I'm, I'm just here for a minute three hours later you're going home man um the, she was 
of playing back video of Barbara Dixon and Elaine Page wow. doing I Know Him So Well when they were number one, singing back to back on top of the pops. And my, uh, I remember still to this day, my mum to turn to my gran and say, ee, well, I love Barbara Dixon because she's got a lovely voice, but if you've seen the state of Elaine Page, do not like a dog's dinner. And then going back and looking at it, she did go really heavy on the blusher <laughs> in that appearance. And what what other kind of things has stuck out? Coronation Street? Yes, yes. The 1980s Coronation Street has, has had sort of a big sort of effect on me in terms of in terms of a lot of things, particularly in the way that I write and the way that I want to write about, so I want to write the voices and the experiences of women who aren't necessarily sort of ingenues, um, mm. as it were. There's something so specific about the voice of Coronation Street that, like, yeah. just the humour of Coronation Street, I think it is deceptively simple in its... Yeah, there's something so clever about Coronation Street and it's yeah I love its little chorus of sort of old bags just sitting around the table in the room. Yeah. <laughs> in many ways in its kind of like 1980s into the early 1990s manifestation it was a very very sly sitcom. Mm, yes. So the, your, your Bets and your Ritas and your Jacks and your Veras they kind of like held the show together with this sort of vein of humour. I don't know it's sort of a bit folded the kind of the more how would I put it? The kind of the social issues of the actual soap opera, opera they kind of like held, they kind of held them in place. Mm, mm. To be honest, I haven't watched Coronation Street in years. It's kind of completely dropped off my viewing along with all, along with all of the soaps. So I don't know what it looks like at the minute, but it has still has a very sort of precious space in me in, in, in memory. What other things do I remember watching as a kid? I mean, watching telly in the 1980s was basically all that you did, wasn't it? Mm. So it, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all smooshed into one. But like lots of sort of precious sort of memories of you know cartoons, for example, um, to get the kind of the more of the anarchic stuff, like the Merry Melodies stuff, more than oh, okay. Disney. Yeah, we were never a Mickey Mouse house. <laughs> God, Mickey Mouse is insufferable. And also back in the 80s, it was quite difficult to consume Disney content, wasn't it? Yeah. Unless you had fairly wealthy parents who would shell out for those videos. <laughs> There's so, something about that kind of, who actually likes Mickey Mouse for all he's He's the sort of the mascot for the Disney company. Yeah. I don't know anyone who's, I don't know, rushing home to put Mickey Mouse cards. I think it, Mickey Mouse is better understood as branding rather than IP. Yes, yes. <laughs> to use my professional voice <laughs> for a second. Always loved sitcoms. There's kind of a few things that jump out for me. One of the first sitcoms that I genuinely loved was a kid's sitcom called Rent-A-Ghost. Oh, of course, of course. Brilliant. Which is canonically queer. Yes. Looking uh, looking back on it and also has um, a bit of a big, big crossover with Coronation Street, with Audrey having been in it <laughs> as Miss Popoff. Yes, brilliant, brilliant. I feel like Rent-A-Ghost as well is one of those things where they're always threatening to remake it or reboot it. I feel like it's it due a... never happen. Oh, no, I feel like it's due a, a turn in the limelight again. I don't know, a dark and edgy, sexy Rent-A-Ghost. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the uh, sort of the problem with Bratz dolls is that they don't fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, that, like that Dora the Explorer film where one of the critics was, oh, there's not enough sexual tension in this. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
there is plenty of content out there. You don't need it. Does, uh, and another kids sitcom that doesn't get talked about anywhere near as much as Rent a Ghost was called Galloping Galaxies. Oh, wow. I have no recollection. There was one, maybe one or two seasons made of it. It was made by Bob Block, okay. who did Rent a Ghost. And it was a campy sort of space adventure set on this spaceship, staffed by idiots and the scrapes that they got into and an old lady that they managed to beam up accidentally from Chipping Norton. Amazing. It was kind of the voice of sensibleness on the show. But it had in it a sarcastic robot character called Sid, who was voiced by Kenneth Williams not long before he died. So I think it's one of his last TV or screen appearances. It's never been repeated. I don't really think it's even available anymore. There was kind of, there's a very sort of crappy copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a VHS video of the first episode somewhere up on YouTube, but they might have taken that down again. Like that sort of aesthetic of it's science fiction it's funny it's a little bit campy it's a little bit gym crack we're not talking about the people who are kind of like saving the universe or if they did it's only accidentally i think that kind of stuff that sort of like ambience and the things that i was attracted to like way back then have you know years later found their way back into my writing yeah yeah and of course saint victoria wood oh of course of course <laughs> no that's all making sense now actually with your you know it's something about 80s television that was just very camp and like yeah. very queer in a way that i think straight people wouldn't necessarily no. immediately understand um, I suppose I would say I would modulate it and I would say something about 1980s British television. Yes, yes. It's very camp because, I mean, if we think about kind of that, towards that sort of like Susan Sontag definition of camp in terms of it being a piece of work that aspires to the status of high art but falls short, mm. then things like the production values, particularly of Brit- a lot of British television in the 80s, they're set up quite well to create that kind of camp. And I also suppose you know, the queerness as well comes in with just the energy you had to put into reading things in order to see yourself in them. Yes, yes, yes. A lost art, I would say. <laughs> and, and also, I think there's kind of like, there's a sort of a big conversation to be had on, you know, have we as a society lost the art of close reading? I think that's interesting. But should we be sort of hankering back for the days where you really, really, really have to stretch your mind in order to be able to see yourself in art? I'm not nostalgic for that. Like one can stay in the dustbin <laughs> history as far as I'm concerned. Not nostalgic for it, but I think, I don't know, I think there is something about, I don't know, I think we've reached this real place, and we'll probably talk about this later, but this real place of like where queerness and often where like identity is being represented mm on television and in stories, often in a way that isn't, that's like kind of packaging your identity and selling it back to you. Yeah. And doesn't feel very interesting to me in the way that some of those things felt interesting to me. Well, it's not, it is by virtue not subversive, is it? Yes, that's it. It's about the lack of subversiveness. But I do think we occasionally see that pop up again. I suppose just to touch briefly on, because I'm kind of conscious that I've sort of talked about sort of quite formative sort of experiences of television, but to talk about the kind of the more subversive stuff, there was also Channel 4 in the 90s, mm, mm. particularly the way in which sort of Channel 4, back then anyway, took some very interesting risks with 
kind of the representation of you know sexuality and what we might call now alternative identities and turn those into programming yeah i mean we can all think about things like euro trash which you know approach that through a very campy lens but stuff like oh god what was it the season the red light zone Oh, I'm not aware of that at all. God, that was a, a season. It happened very, very late on Saturday nights on Channel 4 in like the mid-90s, I want to say. And it was kind of like lots of sort of queer short films, documentaries, things like Hookers, Hustlers, Pimps and Their Johns. Oh, wow. Which still goes down as the best documentary title that has ever been, <laughs> uh, that's ever been put on the side of a VHS and then taken out of the video shop by people under sort of very false pretenses. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, to be fair, a lot of the kind of the attraction towards that sort of looking at like a 14 year old 15 year old boy was was titillation Mm. but again looking back on it to that kind of programming has had kind of a very long half-life in my brain in terms of you know how is it that we you know depict sort of queerness in art you know how does it show up how do we want to see it and consume it and it was all done in such a way because that was just the way that things had to be back then without the expectation that the primary consumers of the kind of the artwork itself would be cis heterosexual people. Mm, mm, yes, yes. Oh, that's all. I feel like I've got 101 questions now to... <laughs> <laughs> what sort of stuff do you like watching now? What are your oh, trash. go-to? Um, trash. <laughs> I've had, I've developed a really, I think it's important to sort of important for me anyway it doesn't it's just telly it doesn't really make that much difference in what I watch but I think it's important for me to remember that I've spent the last two years living in a pandemic yes and that has necessarily changed a lot of my sort of viewing experiences because I've been at home a lot Mm. and I live on my own primarily so I've been on my own a lot so what I've needed and expected from television in like 20, going into 2021, I mean, even now, isn't necessarily stimulation or entertainment in the same way that it was before mm. I was spending sort of much less time out the house. So my sort of viewing habits have gone either very, very deep or very, very shallow. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so like in the very beginning of lockdown, I watched more or less, I bought a DVD player specifically so I could watch the box set of Columbo that somebody had given me. Oh, wow. That is, <laughs> that's a very specific flavour for lockdown. But I wholeheartedly love Columbo. <laughs> um, a, because most of the all, the, all of the best stuff was made in the 70s. So the art direction is amazing. <laughs> it was all filmed in California. So it's got full of these sort of amazing sort of 1970s interiors. It's very, very highly polished, but also very formulaic as well. So it's very good comfort viewing. And more or less, all of the stories are about the rich person being a bastard and then being brought out. <laughs> Yes, more of that, I think, actually. It's got to, Columbo is such like being off school telly. Yeah, it is, like it's, yeah. <laughs> that's why I love it. It makes sense to go back to that in, in a pandemic. I think it's also because what Columbo is very good, it's kind of like if you think about, if you're going to be a bit deep about it for a minute, what T.S. Eliot wrote about detective fiction, mm. in that the thing that we're looking for when we read a detective story is the restoration of justice the restoration of order. Uh, okay. 
And it's that kind of like the detective in the way that T.S. Eliot is describing it plays the role of the deus ex machina. Yes. Coming on at the end of the play, doing the restoration of justice. And that's the role that Columbo is set up in. You know, we see the tragedy and then he comes in and put it right. To a similar end, I watched 26 seasons of a show called Snapped. Wow, I have never heard of that. It's terrible. (laughs) I wholeheartedly would not recommend it, and yet I wholeheartedly (laughs) recommend it. Every single, it's like 45-minute episode, it's true crime, it's American, it has the flattest voiceover you have ever heard in your life. And every single episode is like, she was the hardworking single mom who was down on her luck. He was the kind-hearted farmer who took her in. (laughs) Together, it looked like they were building the American dream together. And then it all went wrong. 45 minutes of this. Oh, wow. And it's basically about women who snap. (gasps) And there's 22 seasons of this show. I think there's something like 29 seasons of it now. Not all are available in all street in all streaming territories. <laughs> so I did that. What else have I really enjoyed? At the minute, I'm really into the Golden Girls. Yes, and a lot of people are at the minute. I think it's getting a real, like, obviously the Betty White stuff, but I think because it went on Disney Plus and it's sort of easy to watch. Again. Call it by its proper name, Disney Positive. Oh, <laughs> so I should. Disney positive. Disney positive. <laughs> yeah, I think it's getting a real kind of moment again and people are rediscovering why people love the Golden Girls. It's, I mean, watching it, having you know, only sort of like half watched it sort of back when it was first on and again watching it now being at least, you know, half a professional writer, mm. sort of the, the sharpness of the writing yes. on it is astonishing. And the craft that's obviously gone into the a, a those scripts, but those performances, yes, is just is such a pleasure to watch something good that people are really good at. Yes, yes, it's just so smart and so those characters are so sharp and so you can sort of jump in and watch any episode as well. Yeah. There's something very comforting about that, I think. Um, which one are you? Which one am I? Oh, I'm probably Dorothy. <laughs> yes. Maybe I want to be Blanche, but maybe I'm Dorothy. <laughs> well, I think I'm a Dorothy, and there's nothing wrong with being a Dorothy. Is this, is this like Sex in the City, Miranda, though, where everyone was Miranda, when anybody who said they were Miranda was really Charlotte? <laughs> one thing I have not been watching is um, I'm Just Like That. Well, I absolutely love and just like that. You. <laughs> yes, I feel like I'm the only one because I unironically am enjoying it. Yeah. It is so absurd. It's just from, because I, I see the discourse on Twitter about it. And I have I have one very good friend who's really into it and also really into tweeting about it. And he said, I think I found my calling. To which I felt compelled to reply, what, you mean you found the other half dozen people in the world <laughs> who are mean and bored enough to want to tweet about the show? <laughs> I think I need to follow him, though. It does come across as being purest chaos. Yes, but I also think there's a lot of revisionist history. Yeah. I think people have forgotten what Sex and the City was like because I think it's a very, very faithful yeah. update. Like, Sex and the City was ridiculous. It was ludicrous. Like, 
I think they're very stuff like the funky spunk episode. Yes, <laughs> yes. And yes. then there was the square. I, I, for some reason, I always seem to remember Samantha's storylines, and I can't really remember anyone else's because maybe they didn't interest me as much. I mean, that's the biggest problem with that show is that she's not in it. Although yeah. I am not convinced that she's not going to be in it because they've mentioned her every single episode so far. Yes, yes. So it's just like, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, that would be the gag of the decade, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. And then people will go back and watch it. (laughs) There was something you just suggested, like, why didn't they just cast Jean Smart? (laughs) Well... Put her in a blonde wig. <laughs> oh, you could never replace that performance. It's so brilliant. She's so good. <laughs> it's the whole kind of, and just like that thing, because I've never felt compelled to go back and watch Sex and the City again. It's one of those things that's so much of its time that I feel all a bit Heraclitus about it. You know, you can't really step in the same river twice, can you? No, I mean, there is, that is a big part of it. I think there's a lot of, apologizing for what the old show was as well the fact that like all of their new friends are all women of color right feels like a bit of a clamor at this point (laughs) (laughs) i mean god bless it it's trying though it's trying its best how many episodes of it are it feels like it's been going on forever I mean, that I think there's 10 altogether, but yeah, it does feel like it's on episode 57 even at this point. <laughs> what's your comfort watch? Do you have a, a show that you go back to? Snaps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not snapped. It's really not snapped. <laughs> um, I tell you what's my discomfort watch at the minute, The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Oh, I've heard, I've heard things about this, this iteration. See, I have resisted the Real Housewives franchise. Just, I, I, it feels like another RuPaul's Drag Race, where yes. you kind of like it's just the fixtures, the fandom. It's like who has the time? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the pointless rivalries. No. So I started watching Salt Lake City. I didn't actually did not finish season one, as I just found it shredded my nerves. Mm. because so much of it is just people shouting at each, at each other which I don't enjoy yes and but then a friend of mine is like you have to watch season two because it basically becomes a true crime and so I'm watching it at the minute and I sort of really loving the because I think that this is interesting because it seems to have happened with cheer doesn't it cheer doesn't it mm. so the season two of cheer has an emergent true crime storyline in it. And I think there's something about the way in which structured reality is a genre and true crime as a genre seem to be converging on one another. Oh, interesting. Yes, yes. So I'm interested to see where that one comes out. But that I'm kind of enjoying that. But it, whenever they start fighting, which always happens every single goddamn episode, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, can you not get through them? It's like, ladies, can you, not, <laughs> can you not get through a single meal without somebody shouting, physically threatening someone, throwing the napkin down and walking away from the table? I can feel my blood pressure rising. What do I watch for comfort? Um, or what do I go back to? I, one of the shows that I do periodically go back to is absolutely fabulous. Mm, mm. We'll talk about that later, but it's definitely a show that you can keep going back to. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a rich text. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> what else have I kind of watched a few times now? 
Victoria Woods, always loved that one. I was very proud of getting my Portuguese ex-Mormon boyfriend into Victoria Wood. <laughs> wow. That is yeah. yeah, that felt like a that felt, that felt like a win for British culture there. That's a cultural exchange that I feel <laughs> that probably needs a lot of um Oh my god, it's like so much explanation. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He did have to watch Dinner Ladies with subtitles on. Oh well, I mean, yeah, but you still have to watch Dinner Ladies. Like. <laughs> Chris, what? Chris, what does striking mean? I thought, what? <laughs> Where do I start with this one? <laughs> and I like a good detective thing. Mm. For me, the kind of the platonic ideal is always a Columbo. Mm. But I do like things that kind of grope towards that. So I very one of the things that I watched in lockdown from beginning to end and very much enjoyed was Vera. Oh wow, yes. A show that my parents love, so mm. I've obviously never watched it. No, because everybody sort of whenever it gets mentioned that oh you should watch it because you know they've got lots of you know lots of the uh the, the countryside in the northeastern Northumbria, <laughs> it looks lovely. I thought I left there for a reason. <laughs> and uh, and then did never bothered watching it. But I'd been carrying around a joke in my head for ages and occasionally aired it on Twitter that, that Columbo really need to be rebooted. But Columbo had to be played by a woman. It had to be Columba. And she had to be played by Julie Walters. And that's exactly what Vera is, except it's Brenda Blethyn. <laughs> no, I can see that, actually. I can see it. Although the episodes are like two hours long. Are they, they are. I mean, but, but then all of the Columbos were, they were mini movies, essentially. Mm. So they were between an hour and 90 minutes long. Um, I think what I like about them is because crime telly got really baroque for for quite a long time. So mm. you did things like Luther and everyone was evil. Everyone was a serial killer. There were kind of these huge sort of multi-episode storylines, which were all, always about sort of catching psychopaths. But what's nice about Vera is that it doesn't have any of that. Yes. It's almost always about not how somebody being evil led to murder, but how it's a thing that people do out of the sense of desperation and feeling they were backed into a corner. And it's usually somebody that you know and very often say you loved as well. So there's something about that kind of representation of one of the most awful things we can conceive of happening to a person as being something that's real Mm. rather than something that, you know, a supervillain does to us. Yes. I think is quite powerful. I should also add that my uh, the house I grew up in, my dad was a policeman. Okay. Um, and he worked on murders quite a lot, so I was kind of, like, exposed to that. Interestingly, if you asked him about what was the most realistic depiction of what it's like to solve a murder on the telly, he would say The Fall. Okay, okay. I don't. Was the fall the Irish one? Yeah, the one with Gillian Anderson and uh, Jamie Dornan in. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember that much about it, to be honest with you. But and to be honest, I haven't watched it. Um, is it revolves around sort of basically around sexual violence against women? Yeah, which is again something that I've made a sort of a conscious decision to try not to watch. Which was one of the reasons why I never bothered finishing Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, it does become quite difficult i would never say not to watch that sort of thing but yeah there are other stories to tell and there are other reasons for people yeah i don't know to be put in a bad position I mean, it was just that moment when kind of the second to last season of game of thrones where sansa suddenly became conscious about you know her power and what she was able to do and you know how she could become a queen and all that 
happen because she was raped. Yeah, yeah. They just lost me there. Yeah, I mean, that Game of Thrones is a real... That show lost me quite a few times, but I still kept going back to it because I wanted to see how it ended. Yeah. Look where that got us. By by the time the the last season came around, I I kind of want to know how it ends, but I also can't be bothered getting there. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be really dark. It's going to be a lot of a slog. There's going to be lots and lots of stuff in there that I find quite just unnecessarily well i just find violent i don't find interesting so i'm gonna do myself a blessing and not bother yeah well i think you did the right thing because yeah it's quite a journey and it doesn't necessarily end in any interesting way no but also i think it's one of those things where I, i with all credit to the writers they you know they had to make something out of that source material and i don't know whether you've ever read the books I tried that. Yeah. Those books are not for me. I don't like a long book. Anything over 200 pages, I think, is going <laughs> on a bit, to be honest. I, I thought it was a wonderful example of the last book, anyway, and I fully believe there will never be a sixth now. Oh, wow. Finish that. A wonderful example of how you can write yourself into a corner. Mm, yes. And he spent an awfully long time sort of writing characters and writing stories of characters in such a way that he, they were so far apart and so disparate and there were so many different things happening. And then he kept introducing new things in order to keep it interesting for himself, clearly. Mm. That it's utterly impossible to imagine how you're going to begin to bring those threads back together again. Yeah, yeah. That sort of high fantasy thing is just not a world that I'm interested in either. Or... Yeah. Yeah, I haven't really. I think I watched a trailer for the Wheel of Time. I'm not sure about this one. I like that this exists on the space-time continuum somewhere, but maybe not for me. Yeah, and yeah. I am still utterly gassed that um, Amazon is going to do all of that. Is going to make an enormous TV series that costs a gazillion dollars. Yes, based on like a few lines that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in the afterword of the um, of the Lord of the Rings. I think that's going to be brilliant. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm uh, slightly dubious of it, but I'm. Oh no, I think it's going to be terrible. But, <laughs> but I, I just love the fact Amazon will have gone to the estate owners and go, "We want Lord of the Rings. Sell us it." And they've gone, "No, what, you can." <laughs> have this <laughs> so what the the bit of history in middle earth that was so boring the not even noted <laughs> detail freak J.R.R. tolkien could be bothered to write anything more on it and then some stuff happened and there was a ring oh wow yes i think it's gonna be yeah it'll be interesting to see and i think these things because they're so like not part of my world at all that i think it'll be um like interesting to see how it's received yeah more so than actually whether it'll be a good show or not. Because they're paying a lot of money for that show, so they clearly... Oh, yeah. They think they're going to be selling rings and T-shirts for the next 50 years off the back of it, I think. Well, you know, they can... I suppose there, at least, they've also got kind of the whole Amazon ecosystem that they can make the fullest use of. Mm. So I can imagine lots and lots and lots of lovely vertical integration going on there. Oh, wow, yes, we were getting adverts halfway through from yeah. the characters themselves. <laughs> like suggested, uh, kind of like suggested merch um, mm. appearing, um, sort of appearing at, the, appearing at the bottom of the screen. God knows what will get pushed at you when you don't pass the till when you go to an Amazon Fresh store. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? 
Is there an iconic TV moment that you go back to again and again? Um, the one thing I can never, ever, ever sort of be bored of watching and watching again is that Victoria Wood sketch where it's Victoria Wood and G.B. Walters at the department store cafe. Okay, is it two soups? No, no, it's not. It's not two soups. It's like you know, I've, I've, I've scoured this shop from top to bottom, and can I find a side riding thermal body belt? Can I buffalo? <laughs> and they're going up and down this um, sort of the you know those sort of department store cafes with the rails in front of the glass and sort of cakes and soups and, and things like that. So they're going up and down it while they're having sort of a conversation about pedestal mats accidentally tottering into a brothel, hair colouring, things like that. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sketch. It's about three minutes long and I, I never get tired of watching it. Oh, I don't know that one. I don't know that one at all. I'm going to go back and find it on YouTube. The favourite ever sketch of the guy liner. Oh, OK. <laughs> that, I feel like that's a very particular mood that I, I, could, I could almost write it. <laughs> every six months. But it is, it's, it's wonderful because it's Julie Walters being her absolutely most Julie Walters. And okay. Victoria Wood being her most Victoria Wood. So Julie Walters gets all of the lines and... And Victoria kind of just stands there and gives an occasional nod, which is just, it's just perfect. Brilliant. Um, are you watching anything right now? Um, well, not right now. Not um, right now. <laughs> what am I watching? Um, I'm going through quite slowly. I'm not doing it in a binge. I'm actually watching Killing Eve. Oh, okay. I didn't bother when it first came out because it's just something about when a show is sort of really buzzy. I don't necessarily feel the urge to just get caught up in it, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not interested. I'll just get to it in my own time. I really, I'm so far, I'm really loving it, and I can totally see why, just from the first few episodes, why you would bring in Phoebe Waller-Bridge to tart up the Bond franchise. Yes. But I yes. also just massively annoyed that they didn't just give her a franchise. Like, why don't you write, you know, it's spy, but it's serious. Mm, mm. What, what else am I watching? Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, that's mercifully ending soon. <laughs> and in one of my sort of like deep historic dives, when I want to switch my brain off in the evening and do needlework, I'm watching A Touch of Frost on ITV Hub. Oh, wow. I'm getting a real sense for this. These kind of, I don't know if it's cosy drama, but these very, very specific flavors of um yeah. crime show yeah. well I, th I think the reason why i'm liking it is not just because i kind of have half formed memories of what it was like to watch it when i was a kid but also it has the very similar energy to vera in mm. that it's not you know the villains in it that the murderers in it are not presented as being sort of all-powerful villains mm. you know they're presented as being you know flawed people backed into a corner, caught up with stuff, but nobody's happy about having done a murder. Yes, yes. That is a, a specific vibe that I, I can I can get on board with. <laughs> um, why don't you tell us about your very special episode? My very special episode is the first episode of Absolutely Fabulous, which is called Fashion, uh, which I believe was broadcast either in 1991 or 1992. And I saw it pretty much on its first run about when it was broadcast on BBC Two and accidentally became a massive hit and then moved to BBC One and be became mm. culturally inescapable for about five or six years. The reason I 
picked it is because for me anyway, that sort of that show, Absolutely Fabulous, was kind of this really sort of eye-opening window into a world I didn't know existed. It's like an, an, as an 11-year-old living in South Shields, a world of kind of like media and fashion and magazines and ridiculousness mm. and public relations in which I now work <laughs> when I'm not writing books. So it's kind of that over and above the fact that it's a very, very, very funny sitcom, it kind of has a special place for me in terms of shoving my face up against what metropolitan life looked like in the 90s. And as much as you know, it was intended to satirise it, you know, there was a big part of me that saw it and thought, yeah, I want me some of that. Yes, yes. And I've also picked it because I think it's a really interesting and good example of great sitcom writing, great sitcom performances, but also looking at it from the point of view that it was kind of the first episode of the show, how looking at Absolutely Fabulous before Absolutely Fabulous and the characters within it became a parody of themselves. Yes, yes, that's interesting because that was my kind of going back and re-watching this. I don't think I've gone back to Abfab mm. over the years, but I just didn't have much of a memory of this episode. Yeah. And I think it's because it's a sort of quintessential AbFab episode. Yeah. Where all of the ingredients are there, but it maybe hasn't fully settled into what it would become. Mm. And I think you might be onto something when you talk about them becoming a sort of parody of themselves at some point. I mean, but certainly by the time of kind of the season three and then season four when it came back and I still mm. season four still has a very special place in my heart, but everything after after season four I I, prefer, I would have genuinely preferred didn't exist. But yes. it does. It became absolutely fabulous is you know, a very kind of specific dynamic of sort of like characters and catchphrases. Mm, yes. It became very sort of like the thing that you would see on the sides of pencil cases. Yes. And you were waiting for the, you know, who, which, um, which celebrities were going to be in this episode. So basically the death of any sitcom mm. when it becomes a series of kind of like set pieces that lead to catchphrases or scenarios that, are funny because they're familiar or you've seen them before or a means by which you introduce a celebrity guest whereas fashion kind of has to stand on its own as a half hour of comedy yes yes and i think it's a bloody good half hour of comedy to go back and watch it again like there's a lot in there that's fantastic i think you said before that uh ab fab is one of your sort of comfort watches yeah. like your shows that you revisit yeah is it is it something you go back to again and again or is it does it tend to be specific episodes or i'll specific? watch i'll kind of watch a clump of them every now and again mm. which ones do i particularly like i love fashion because i just I, I think it's great more or less all of the first series is really good France, the one where they go on holiday by mistake, that's a really good one. So it's poor. I also love The Last Shout. I don't know The Last um, Shout. Which is what they did in between season three and seasons four. So it's, it was basically a TV movie that was cut into two. Okay. First episode is about Patsy and Eddie going skiing. The second episode is about Safi getting married. Okay. I don't remember that at all. Again, that's... I, I love that because that's got lots of very good set pieces in it. And it is, it's got to that point where Abfab was getting quite tropey, but it, it did it well. The episode I always go back to, the one that I always remember, and I can't even, I don't know what season it's from, but it's the one where Safi does the play. Yeah. 
about her mum and Patsy and stuff. And yeah, that's the one that I, I just, that's ab fab to me. Yeah, I, I, for, for me, just because I've seen them so many times, like seasons one and two, mm. I can practically quote vast, <laughs> quote vast swathes of it. I did, like, if you watch it kind of in sequence, what you do see is the way in which in like season one of Absolutely Fabulous, Patsy has a very different energy to what she ends up with. Yes. Yes, I agree. So she, in the beginning, she's this very sort of smart, very, very cynical, very sarcastic fashion journalist. Mm. And then by season four, she's just a drunk and a drug addict. Yes, yes. Yeah, I do think it goes to such a strange place that going back and watching this, yeah, it's funnier, it's sharper, there's a lot more going on. Now that I've kind of had time to think about it, I think the thing I love about Absolutely Fabulous is a satire on a lot of different things. Mm. So, you know, ostensibly it's a satire about public relations and that very specific moment in the 90s where, you know, there was this explosion of media and not enough content to fill the media. Yes, yes. So into that environment comes the wonderful world of public relations, which, you know, crap is the new fantastic. Let's find ways to kind of like package up all of this shit the business wants to throw into the media and get it in there. Mm. So kind of that, you know, the figure of Adina Monsoon, who herself was based on um, a PR consultant called Lynn Franks. Yes. Comes in there. So it's a very, very sort of clever satire and sort of media culture in the 90s and fashion, which then sort of morphs into, as you go into kind of like season three, season four, season five, it becomes a satire on celebrity. Yes. Yes. And wanting the kind of the prevailing anyone can be famous, anyone should want to be famous, culture of the noughties. But the thing I think that stopped it from being just a very sort of straight down the line, look at these people, aren't they ridiculous kind of comedy, was that it was also the people in it were kind of too old to be with it. Yes. But they were still current. Yes. Yes. There's the, the joke that Adina is, you know, she always wears ridiculous clothes that, are too, clothes that are too small for her, but she kind of has her finger on the pulse of culture. Mm. Yes. yes. And people make fun of the fact that she's too old to have her finger on the pulse of culture, and yet she still has it. So there's an underlying idea that Adina has, obviously has sort of great limitations as a person particularly in the way that she treats her family and specifically her daughter. But you know, there's something in there that explains why she is successful. Yes, yes. And I think that disappears as it goes on, actually. Yeah. That, yeah. Because I think there are many reasons to hate the film, and let's not dwell <laughs> too much on them. But what shone out for me when I watched it is, oh, this is now a satire about being old. Mm. So it's not even about you know being interested in or aware of what you know culture or youth culture is yes it's just being sad about the fact that you're you feel too old you are too old to be able to participate in it yes yes i would agree yeah it's been a while since i saw the movie but um, i mean don't watch it again i know i'd rather not watch do yourself it a blessing yes <laughs> um can you give us a, a sort of 60 second synopsis of fashion 
Oh, right. Okay. So Adina Monsoon, who is a PR, who is a kind of a, a celebrity-ish, very successful PR consultant, wakes up in bed. She's got a hangover, but she's always got a hangover because she's basically always drunk. She goes downstairs to find her daughter, who is 16-year-old Safi, who is the most straight-laced person that you could ever conceive of existing, is having breakfast while Eddie's car, because she has to have a car waiting for all time, waits outside. Eddie basically has a breakdown about the fact that she's got a fashion show on this evening. It's really important. It's really important for her business, but she can't really seem to get herself together enough to actually go into the office to organize it. Then her friend Patsy, Patsy Stone, who is a fashion director, not a journalist, um, (laughs) turns up. Together they get Eddie's car into her office. Here Eddie discovers that the fashion show that's going on this evening is turning out to be a bit of a disaster because their star model, Yasmin Lebon, hasn't turned up and none of their celebrity guests are turning up and Princess Diana has been substituted for Princess Anne at the very last moment. (laughs) So Eddie gets out her contact book. She does a lot of coke. She drinks a lot of red wine, pulls out all of the stops does the fashion show the fashion show ends up being a wonderful success and then she and patsy celebrate by getting stonkingly drunk and the episode ends with a reminiscence of how eddie has always been out with patsy getting stonkingly drunk and then going back to her very sensible family with a flashback to what that looked like in the 60s when with adina's own mother being played by june whitfield doing a cameo she then becomes sort of a regular member of the cast of the show and it ends with her falling out of a taxi again and then beating on the back door um to be let into the house because she's lost her keys saying sweetie darling let me in so that's the fashion <laughs> That was incredible. I don't think anyone's ever done it like that before. That was amazing. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) I've seen it so many times. (laughs) Um, What's the stuff you like about this episode? So I I love the energy of it. It's kind of from the very beginning, the very first shot is of Eddie's alarm clock going off. And it's some very sort of like early 1990s dance music. She wakes up and there's half a bottle of red wine by her bedside. And Safi's outside saying, Mom, get up, it's 9.30 and your car's been waiting for an hour. And she just blows a raspberry at her. And that's it starts on exactly the kind of energy that it keeps up. It's very mm. verbal comedy. There's a very sort of badinage-based relationship between Safi and Eddie and also between Eddie and Patsy. So the dialogue's really sharp all the mm. way through. There's lots and lots of very good jokes. I think another thing that's really interesting about the show is the way that it uses cultural references that aren't necessarily part of mass culture Yes, as a yes. way to kind of drawing you into their world. I'd never heard of Marissa Berenson Mm. before I saw fashion. Obviously, in 1991, it was quite difficult to find out who Marissa Berenson was. But it uses these kind of cultural references very, very cleverly in a way to kind of like to tell you exactly what the characters are trying to say and what they aspire to. So in in fashion, for example, they reference Marissa Berenson and then they also reference Anushka Hempel which kind of puts you in that very sort of uh, late 1980s into the early 1990s kind of like Euro chic Mm. world. So obviously that tells you where Eddie is aspiring to be. Yes. It tells you that she wants to be the kind of slightly socialite slightly famous person that you would find on the pages of Hello. Yes. I I hadn't really clocked that, but there is like an ambition to it. Yeah. 
that again I think gets lost as it becomes more about celebrity yeah and sort of is pulling from those more mainstream references like it it feels like it's about fashion and it's about that world I don't know I'm not part of that world but it feels very convincing to me anyway and there's something about her as a character and this is not like an original Mm. observation but she is real. Like I know women like oh, that. God, yeah. Still, she still I exists. Work with them. <laughs> yes. Like they're all over the place, and they're particularly in media and culture. So. Yeah. And that character, I think, going back and watching this, I was like, it's all there, really. Like the mm. makeup of the whole show is there. She's just so well realized from moment one. I think the other thing that stuck out for me again, rewatching it last night, was how much things have not changed yes or not necessarily not changed but how we might have come around full circle on a lot of things Mm. so the way that she talks about it's not a fad it's not like crystals and then there's a whole kind of there's running jokes about how they're having done buddhism for about five minutes (laughs) and then um things like um Remind me to ring Shikani, he's got a channel of colour for me. And she rings up Shikani. Like, Hello, Shikani, it's Eddie. Orange, thank you. Um, no, it was green, thank you. And she puts the phone down again. It's just something about that sort of wellnessy mm. world, that wellnessy, pseudo sciencey world that Eddie seems to inhabit because she's like a rich lady in West London. It's really interesting to see how that was a really far out, wacky idea in 1991 and maybe went away for it but now that is all of those things that eddie is espousing are part of mass culture oh absolutely yeah and another thing is that when she's talking about the fashion show and when she's talking about feeling guilty about taking her car into the office but it's okay because there were three people in that car it wasn't really polluting. And they're talking about, I want happy gay couples. I want people of all colours. I want some big screens that say fashion cares. It's like, <laughs> oh God, it's exactly the same thing I do now every single damn day at work. Which is, how are we including representation into this? It's just like it was in one way, it's like, oh, I think maybe things haven't changed that much at all. <laughs> or maybe they've gone full circle. Or maybe the kind of things that Jennifer Saunders was satirizing in the early 90s are now just real. Yeah, I think it's a bit of all of that, but it does feel, yeah, I mean, I, it feels like you could put this on now and it wouldn't necessarily. It, it doesn't feel dated, is, is what I'm kind of yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not undated. I mean, going back on it, you would not be able to do the fat jokes now. No, no. And you should not be able to do the fat jokes now. And I think they'd probably have to give Eddie a completely different hang-up. But yes. her, the, particularly the way that, like, Safi talks to Eddie about her body. Yes. I thought, oh, well, how was it that you ended up a mad, fat old cow? in basically the first five minutes of the show. And then the whole of the second episode of the first season is about her obsessing about being fat. I don't think you could do that. There was also the very icky, now that we look back on it, Patsy was trans for about five minutes storyline. Yeah, yeah, there is some slightly... And I, yeah, not to harp on the film, but there's a lot of that in the film as well. Yeah. Um, It feels like, yeah, we'll go there with Jennifer Saunders, but it feels like she maybe has like a moment. (laughs) (laughs) No... Um, yeah, but the other thing that I really liked about this is is I, I think it is very verbal, but I think the physical comedy mm. is there. And I think it's 
physical comedy in the way that I don't think a lot of women are allowed to do comedy this physical. No, I think that's true. Like, I mean, I mean, not in this episode, but there's episodes where she just falls down the stairs and that's yeah. the joke. Like, yeah. the bit in this that I loved is when she woke up and she opens the curtains and like, yes. sort of shrinks back, like sort of Nosferatu. It's brilliant. Yeah. It's like really, really big, broad physical mm. jokes. It's so funny. I think we also have to put this into context, though, is that women doing physical comedy, yes, I think it's kind of, it's putting sort of absolutely fabulous in there. The actors were, you know, sort of quite physical as well as being verbally funny. Mm. But Keeping Up Appearances was airing at the same time as this. Mm. Mm. And that, the Patricia Routledge in that does amazing physical comedy. Yes, yes. Because the thing we never remember is that I think Keeping Up Appearances is the most successful show in terms of international sales that the BBC has ever made. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's that's interesting. I got told this a few years ago by somebody who works in TV sales, and I thought, I was really surprised. But then I was like, oh, no, I, I know why. Is It works in the same way that Mr Bean works. Yeah, yeah. So most of the comedy is physical. So you don't have to worry so much about the problem of translation. And also, everyone knows a hyacinth bucket. Yes, yes. In the same way that you don't know an Adina Monsoon, unless yes. you're fortunate enough to work for a uh, work for a large PR agency, in which case you know five. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when you said that before about it moving to BBC One, that feels particularly strange to me as well. Like, it feels like it did just hit at the right moment. And oh, yeah, like absolutely. This real cultural impact that I suspect they weren't expecting and it feels like a BBC Two show it feels yeah. like something that you know everyone I know has seen it and mm. loves it but you know my mum's never watched it and I don't suspect she ever will that kind of yeah yeah it's it's weird that it occupies this space but it was very 90s it was kind of like brash and rude mm. and drunk Yes. When anybody who works in the media talks about the 90s, they have the, kind of that same look in their eyes that I imagine people who fought in World War II might have had. <laughs> so, talking about the beaches in Normandy or whatever. But I think the other thing about it is, talk briefly about Joanna Lumley and what mm. that did for her career. Yes, yes. And how she was a fairly washed-up TV actor before this came along. Mm. And how she was such a revelation in that role because it was so physical. Yes, yes. I, I mean, what I was struck by with that is, like, it's about 15 minutes in. It's about halfway mm. through the episode until Patsy shows up. Like, yeah. And it's it's not like they're building up to her either. Like, the show is about Eddie and Saffron, I think, yeah. in that first part. But, yeah, she's incredible in this as well. And And I don't think people would have expected this from her at the time. No, it was completely left field because she was... What she done? I mean, she'd done she'd done the new Avengers mm. in the seventies. I think she'd done a lot of a fair amount of serious ish to. She'd done Sapphire and Steel, hadn't she? And nobody expected her to be that good at comedy. No, no, and she's brilliant. Like it's, I think there's an extent to which sometimes these people <laughs> become the character, but the, but Patsy's fully realised there from yeah. that first moment. I mean, she becomes dopier. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's, you know, 
trying to sort of depict somebody whose brain is gradually being, you know, worn away by overexposure to drink or drugs, mm. or whether they're just, you know, playing into the fact that, you know, she's a bimbo. Yes, I think it's probably the second, to be honest yeah. with you. But yeah, I think it, she's incredible in this. Is there anything you don't like about this episode? Um, looking back on it, the, the, the fat stuff, mm. I don't like so much. And... I think the ending is slightly flat. Mm, yeah, yeah. Just coming back drunk doesn't feel like it ends on a massive punchline. Although, for years and years afterwards, that shot of Jennifer Saunders falling out the back of the cab would sort of come back and back and back on clip shows. Yeah. Being a thing that people thought was utterly amazing and hilarious. So maybe that joke didn't land with me in the same way. If I can level any criticism towards it structurally and it's like it's a first episode and it's not fully realized in the same way that i would say to come back to the golden girls everything mm. is there with the golden girls absolutely more or less 100 percent, with the exception of one bizarre character who they wrote out after the pilot everything yeah. is there from the get-go and i think don't think it's quite there yet no with fashion but in terms of all of the elements if it's about you know it's about media it's about celebrity it's about women behaving badly yes it's about you know the satire of the media professional life and fashion yeah it's all there hook it into my veins (laughs) i think i think that was one of the things i was really struck by as well was the the fact that in this episode she's good at her job or she's quite good at her job yeah which i think disappears as it goes on but I think it's that I never want to have that conversation about like we're too woke to do comedy now and stuff yeah. like that. But there is something about she's horrible and Patsy's kind of horrible. Mm. And that she's also tragic yeah. in a way that I just, I don't know if we're ready for that at this moment in time. There's a spikiness to it yeah. that I feel like I react to. I feel like we've got quite a lot of very, very nice comedies, mm. um, stuff like Shit's Creek and Ted Lasso and stuff, and I get why they're popular, but I would love to see something with a bit of bite to it. Like, Yeah, but I think if we were to talk briefly about kind of like, yeah, the the niceness of comedy. I mean, it's it's a, it's a trend and trends come and trends go, don't they? Mm. So I've got no doubt that there are shows out there in development which are much spikier. I think to think of, think of the last sort of truly spiky comedies, we have to go back to the thick of it, don't we? And stuff mm, like yes. that. It's like Absolutely Fabulous is kind of like a spiky show, but the thick of it and Veep is venomous. Mm, mm, yes. And that, very, very sort of aggressive, nasty, stick the knife in and twist it humour. I think that worked up to a peak at the same way that I think cringe comedy worked up to a peak. Mm, yeah. So everybody yeah. took that sort of the pattern book of The Office, which I cannot go on with. No. Because I work in an office. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need kind of the despair and ennui of office life sort of bashed off the back of my head with a plank. I live that reality every <laughs> damn day. Thank you very much, Ricky Gervais. I think there's been a couple of forces within comedy that have brought sort of nastiness and also realness to a point of impasse or at least boredom. Yeah. So yeah. we're doing something different now, and I don't know whether we'll look back on... You know, I do like Shit's Creek, but I don't know whether we'll look back on it in the same fondness as we do now. I mean, we might end up thinking of it as being a bit like a lower low, mightn't we? <laughs> 
which incidentally, one or two belly laughs an episode. I'm yeah. just surprised. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't say I've revisited it recently, but... Uh, I think I watched one or two episodes on a streaming site, on an illegal streaming <laughs> site a couple of years ago for the lols, and I, I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to say about fashion? About fashion? I mean, I feel like a fraud talking about fashion because I can't, I know it exists. I'd have a friend who works in fashion, who works in celebrity dressing, and obviously he's very into it. And one day, a few years ago, he turned to me and said, Chris, your look is not fashion. It's <laughs> contemporary. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> And I have taken that to heart ever since. I aspire <laughs> not to be fashionable, but to be contemporary. That, <laughs> that is my contribution to it. <laughs> Don't know how to respond to that. Yeah. <laughs> what makes this a very special episode for you? Is there a, a particular scene or a theme that resonates? Um, for me, it's kind of the, it's a little bit about what I was talking about at the, uh, at the beginning of it is it was just such an eye opener for me. Mm. in that it was comedy that sort of made me curious about things that I didn't know about. Yes. So it wasn't using kind of, if we think about people like Victoria Wood, who I love, but they use kind of the nomenclature of the familiar. Mm-hmm. And that they point out the, the absurdity in custard creams. Whereas this is a comedy which is telling me about things like Stolichnaya Vodka or Marissa Berenson or a fur rug that looks like Elkie Zoma. <laughs> so that's, I would say, is being a, one of the means in which I sort of could feel my world opening up to me mm-hmm. uh, or a possible world that was kind of very different to the one that I know. I've actually got a friend who works in a similar age to me, works in a similar field as well. We both sort of watched Absolutely Fabulous when we were in our sort of like 12s, early teens. And we both had exactly the same response to it. Mm. That kind of like, ooh, what's this? I want me some of this, even though it looks ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I, that absolutely makes sense. I, I think I probably have the same reaction. Like, I think, yeah, sort of accidentally aspirational about it, even though they're horrendous. And... I mean, they're horrendous, but they have a fucking great time. They have a great time. <laughs> Who wouldn't like a friend like that, see? I... Yeah, I, this, this is something I kind of like bring into my work as well as a writer. I'm really interested in sort of depicting women behaving badly. Mm. Yeah, I think we don't get enough of it. Yeah. Representations, anyway. Oh, that's been a lovely chat. I, I, I Thank really you. enjoyed revisiting AbFab, and it's been great to chat to you. Where can people find you, um, or where do you want to be found? Where do I want to be found? Wow. <laughs> um, so you can find me on Twitter, where I spend a lot of time, at C McCrudden, which is two C's and two D's. If you prefer Instagram, you can find me at Window Sausage. There is a story behind that one. <laughs> um, wow. and, uh, I, I'll, shall I tell the story? I want to know the story. Okay, yeah. so I was in, I was in, oh God, this, this is such a tell on me. I was in Lisbon a few years ago for the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> and some friends and I were passing a, um, a restaurant in the centre of Lisbon, which had a window that was full of charcuterie, some sort of massive hams and sausages and things like that. And my friend turned to me and he said, oh, I love a window sausage. <laughs> <laughs> which if anybody is under that if you do want to follow me on social media be aware that i post a lot of body shots and he said to me oh i love a window sausage um to which i had to reply 
that sounds quite like my Instagram feed. <laughs> so I changed my screen name to uh, to Window Sausage, and it has been has been there ever since. And lastly, if anybody wants to read my books, I've got three books. The first one's called Battle Star Suburbia. The second one is called Battle Beyond the Dull Stars, and the third one, which is coming out in February, which is called Sate to the Center of the Earth, which are sort of comic science fiction, which kind of like mash up um, Star Wars with the Golden Girls. That's my sell to you. They're all available on Amazon and all of your favorite book retailers if you want to search them out. And there we go. Thank you again to my special guest, Chris McCrudden, uh, for that fantastic episode. I really, really did enjoy that, even though it's been a couple of months since I uh, since we chatted. I hope you'll join me next week, where my very special guest will be David Champaku Paku, uh, and we'll be talking about a very special episode of Scandal, series three, episode one. Uh, which is uh, which was really fun to watch and really fun to talk about. So I can't wait to see you then. In the meantime, do not, whatever you bloody do, touch those dials. <laughs>